The Career Pathways podcast is being brought to you by Lyon College. Lyon College is a selective undergraduate liberal arts college located in the thriving metropolis of Batesville, Arkansas. Founded in 1872, it is one of the oldest colleges in the state. Valued for its small class size, strong student-faculty interactions, and collegial atmosphere, Lyon has forged a singular identity by combining a deep commitment to outstanding liberal, liberal arts with a rich community setting. At Lyon, we are creating a better world starting in Arkansas. Students from Arkansas and far beyond know that Lyon, Col and a Lyon College education means success for themselves, their families, and their communities for decades to come. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm good. Hello, Pat. Well, uh, can't, I'm so glad to have you here. This is going to be a great conversation. Uh, you know, today what we all of us want to learn is just everything, everything about anthropology, and I, and we have no better expert than you. A uh, great way to start is just can you kind of tell us just about yourself, like a, per, a personal background, family, friend, where you're from, where you went to school, kind of uh, to take us from way, way, way back then to today. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Pat, and yeah. thank you, Gavin and Jason, for, for having me on the on the program today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to tell you everything about anthropology, because that's a lot, uh, but I'll do my best to sort of walk through some of these uh, some of these kind of key key things about the discipline and the major and type mm -hmm. of careers that, that are, people get into who study anthropology. So for me, I was... I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, home mid of Gatorade. Home of Gatorade, home of lots of interesting things. The actual fort. Uh, so it's a Midwestern city, probably between the size of Little Rock and Jonesboro. Um, in undergraduate, I actually didn't study anthropology. I didn't study anthropology as a, as a major until I did my PhD. I started out studying uh, jazz performance on guitar in St. Louis, uh, so I kind of had a roundabout way of actually getting to anthropology, which is fairly common for the discipline. Um, essentially here, I've been at Lyon now for five years. This is my fifth year. I live, uh, my wife and I live here in Batesville. We have a son who's three years old, three and a half. Um, so kind of, Anthropology, uh, you know, foreshadowed this a little bit. Anthropology is the study of humanity, right? Yeah. Sort of all things human across time and space. And it's been really fascinating these past few years. My son's a little over three and a half now. Seeing this stuff that we talk about kind of in the abstract about language acquisition and about cultural practices, essentially seeing him kind of take on these things as a small human learning learning in a particular family, a particular culture. Um, so that's just a little bit about me. Other sort of stuff I like to do. Like I said, I, I started out college actually playing music, so I continue I, uh, sort of being, being a fan of music. I still play guitar, although not as seriously as I did mm -hmm. sort of at other times. I like most outdoor stuff hiking, biking, sort of yeah. getting out and about. So this is a really nice area to be in for that sort of thing. Um, I 
think that's... Oh. So uh, uh, as far as undergrad as a music major, then were you a music major in uh, grad school? So I did music performance my first year of undergrad and switched to music therapy. Mm -hmm. um, my second year, dropped out of school and went back a, and then basically pursued music full time mm -hmm. and then went back and did an interdisciplinary program for my undergraduate. Yeah. So essentially my undergraduate and master's degrees are both in Latin American and Caribbean studies. Yeah. Um, so kind of interdisciplinary area studies program. And it was at that point after finishing my master's and sort of knowing that I had only started to scratch the surface of the problem that I was interested in, yeah. I decided to do a PhD. And at that point, choosing a particular discipline makes sense. Yeah. I think doing kind of more interdisciplinary things at the undergraduate and, yeah. and even at the master's level can be, can be very useful. But if you want to go into academia and if you want to sort of have a a disciplinary home making that choice is, is yeah. useful for a lot of people. What was, was there a moment or, or a series of moments that kind of can, where you said anthropology is kind of, this is it for me, this is my North Star, I, I have a home right here in, with this, uh, this profession? I think with figuring out through doing a, an interdisciplinary master's and thinking about the problem that I wanted to investigate, it was clear that anthropologists investigated it in the way that made the most sense to me. Right. So my dissertation um, is all about indigenous education and intercultural education in Mexico. It's a problem that you could study through a political science lens, you could study through a historical lens, you could study through psychology or sociology, all these different disciplines through education studies. But the way that anthropologists do it, sort of really emphasizing ethnographic fieldwork, which means living with a group of people for an extended period of time, doing participant observation, just sort of learning through the physical experience of being there rather than maybe mailing people a survey or doing something kind of more short term, more uh, kind of efficient, if we could yeah. say it that way, sort of in and out. The way that anthropology approached the problem made a lot more sense to me, and it resonated with me. Right. And I think it was, I sort of knew that go doing coursework, but it was really when I did kind of original preliminary research and then longer term field research where I thought, yeah, this is this is the way that I want to approach the problem, and this is this parallels very closely with the way that I think about the world and I think about human relationships and social structures. Very holistic and you, more of a generalist uh, approach that you can touch on a lot of different areas, which kind of leads to kind of the big question, like what is anthropology? How would you define it? Well, I'm going to take the easy way out and use a textbook <laughs> definition at least to start. So anthropology is the study of humanity across time and space. So that means everything from our earliest hominin ancestors, sort of the whole human evolution, all the way across space, meaning the globe, right? So yeah. people everywhere around the world. My own background is, is primarily as a cultural and linguistic anthropologist. So most cultural anthropologists study contemporary people around the world today. Um, there's been a big shift in the discipline over the past half century or so where beforehand cultural anthropologists were known for going out and studying exotic or remote people kind of in far-flung corners of the world. Anthropology today is much more problem-oriented. 
So it's all about how does X affect Y. Right. So you don't see these studies that you used to about, you know, they're simply titled the Navajo or <laughs> right. social organization among the newer, right? It's not that type of thing. It's basically how does this thing interact with this other thing? What happens when a Coca-Cola bottling plant opens up in rural India, right? So that sort of stuff. Okay, um, I love that. Thank you. Um, but how would you pitch or sell anthropology to someone who does not have much of a background or knowledge on said topic? That's a great question. Um, well, you're a human, right? So a good place to start is the fact that this is the study of, of what it means to be human, right? Different disciplines touch on, on humanity, obviously, sociology and history and political science and psychology and all these things. But the word that Pat used earlier, I think, is, is really important about anthropology is that it's holistic. We attempt to study humans through the broadest lens possible. And, and what that means, and certainly the way that I try and uh, teach my own courses here, is that everything we talk about in an anthropology course should be relevant to you and your life and how you understand the world. Right? If we're talking about concepts of culture or social structure or intersectionality or relationships of power, I don't want you just to learn those concepts and then forget them and say, well, you know, I got an A on my test or whatever. Ideally, the stuff that we're talking about, you should be able to apply to things that are going on either in your life or people you know around you or to analyze this big stuff that's happening in our country and in our world. So <clears throat> I, got I got a question, question for, for you. you. So, so my, my big, big question, question for you, you, you said you did like language and all that, right? Mm -hmm. So like, could you tell me, and this is maybe this might be a little too big. Could you tell me how English evolved to how it is today? <laughs> <laughs> I cannot tell you that question specifically. So English, all languages across the world have long histories of interaction among communities of speakers and often with other languages. So the little bit, and this is far outside of my area, I mean, English is a, a really wild in example in that it has very important Germanic influences. It has influences from sort of older and middle English that have evolved in, but it also has really strong romance influences, in particular because of uh, the French conquest or Norman conquest of, of England, but also just because of the prevalence of Latin throughout the Middle Ages. So English is this very odd amalgamation of kind of its more intrinsic aspects along with Germanic influences, romance influences. And even today, right, we see like, it's not that this process stopped at some point in history. We see it going on today. And things like when we say stuff like Spanglish, right, those are influences. How is English being changed right now today because of its interaction predominantly with Spanish, but certainly with other, other languages spoken in the U.S. or we could, we could make the same case at different places around the world. Not to mention, like, all of these other things that are happening because of technology, right? How is English shifting because of... LOL. All of these things that we have in our hands right now, right? Cell phones and texting and these different types of what linguistic anthropologists call multimodal communication, which just means that very rarely are we communicating only through one mode or medium, right? Just speech, just writing. Oftentimes, we're continually kind of tacking back and forth or bringing a whole bunch of different modes into the conversation, right? We're speaking right now 
It's being recorded for the radio, which will be broadcast or available orally in different formats. We've also got this written list of questions. You guys can't see it, but I'm ruffling the paper here. We're also making gestures and facial expressions. So all of these things go into communication, um, and that's been the case across time. So, so this, this is, is my follow-up question, question okay. and, and I'll, I'll be done, done for, for a little, little bit. bit. Um, Let's say like 500 years from now, right? right? Would, if, if we've traveled, traveled 500 years in the future, would we be able to understand English or language like as people today? Or would it be so evolved, going by like what your knowledge of language has evolved over the past however long? Predicting the future is always a, a, a dicey prospect. Um, and this is, again, pretty far out of my arena. But I would think that if English is spoken 500 years from now, it's going to be very, very different. Probably at the level of almost unintelligible. Um, even just thinking now how many Englishes exist in the world, right? There are obviously a lot of countries that have English as their first language, but English is being learned all around the world. Sometimes it's second languages, sometimes it's third, sometimes it's sort of a pidgin language for business or for communication, right? So. The idea that even thinking people just in the United States, again, if the United States exists 500 years from now, would understand how we speak at this moment, it seems pretty unlikely. Um, yes, I loved all of that, honestly. You went about how the um, evolution of technology changed everything. In your opinion, in pop culture, such as movies and video games, could be books, comic books, how do you feel that these big industries portray accuracy in anthropology? Mm, good question. Uh, so how, how do these large media industries portray anthropology? Well, you know, here's, a, here's an example. Uh, Netflix, they have that, uh, uh, that thing on blue zones. Okay. And uh, it's like, how do people, there's certain areas they li people live much longer than the rest, you know, they up to a hundred. And now is that anthropology as far as that people go in and study what it is with Loma Linda, California and some place in, in uh, Siberia or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and, and what is it about these cultures that, uh, that is so different than mainstream culture? Sure. Yeah, that's a good example. Um, I mean, I don't know if the particular people doing that research were trained as anthropologists, but it's very anthropological, yeah. right? Figuring out how culture and health and sort of life ways or even sort of ideas about the world affect these outcomes is very much an anthropological type of project. And one of the kind of emerging, well, it's been around for a little bit, but it's a field that sort of is really expected to grow and kind of hit these types of questions is medical anthropology. There's more and more anthropologists who are really interested in sort of the overlaps between health and culture, right? And the ways that sort of both culture shapes our ideas of health and illness, but as well as how certain assumptions within the medical field are also helping or also um, sort of causing different types of medical outcomes. You know, what you have the definition of anthropology as far as all, it's all, like all things human, uh, what how, is Jane Goodall an uh, anthropologist? Because she here she's living with primates with close approximation, but mm -hmm. is that a field in anthropology? 
So yeah, it is. She is a primatologist, which is a field of biological anthropology. Okay. So our my, the kind of quick and dirty rundown of anthropology is is typically uh, broken down into four main subfields: mm-hmm. cultural, linguistic, archaeology, and biological anthropology. Within each of those, I mean, there's obviously overlap too. People can be doing both biological and cultural work. But within each of those, there's a whole bunch of more specialized subfields. Mm-hmm. So primatologist is a type of anthropologist that works primarily with primates, both living as well as our as well as sort of the fossil record. The idea there, you know, is that we can learn something about human evolution by studying social organization, communication, these sorts of things with our closest relatives, living primates. And that usually happens like in Jane Goodall's case with um, our primate relatives that are the closest to us in evolutionary terms, so like chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans are kind of our, our closest, the primates that are alive today that have the nearest uh, common ancestor as us. And she, and yeah, so as an anthropologist, she did cultural immersion, you know, where she would live, mm-hmm. you know, with the primates, you know, and, and it always frightened me, you know, and it's like, you know, <laughs> it's like they're, you know, they're still, you know, they're still in the animal kingdom, but, uh, you know, it, it seemed to work out okay for her. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, Goodall's work as weather, as well as other primatologists, especially who have worked with chimpanzees, have done a lot to talk about um, sort of how their social organization shares some of the negative characteristics as ours, right? Yeah. Some of, uh, you know, not kind of necessarily the nicest portrait of, of elements of society that exist within yeah. other primates. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty much like the, the Congress as it stands today would probably be a close approximation, you know. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, at Lyon, what, you know, as far as our course curriculum in anthropology, what kind of courses uh, do we offer and, and kind sure. of how, you know, there's a design, I'm sure, in terms of that you, somebody, a student wants to major in anthropology that you have these are the courses that you need to know in order to really understand this field. So how is that all structured? Absolutely, great question. So we offer introductory courses in the four main subfields. So introduction to cultural anthropology, language and culture. Um, we're switching the course that, y- that used to be called human evolution. We're, call it, we're gonna switch it to introduction to biological anthropology and a world prehistory course. So sort of my recommendation is if anyone is interested in anthropology or think they might be interested in anthropology taking the sub one of those subfield courses that is the most aligned with what they think is interesting is a great place to start so if you're really interested in language and linguistic stuff take language and culture if you're really interested in kind of the biology or humans as a biological species take introduction to biological anthropology so anyone who majors in anthropology would take those four introductory courses. They would take six electives at the two to 300 level, and then they would take a couple of research-based kind of capstone type courses. Um, the electives range quite broadly. So the anthropologists here at Lyon are primarily uh, my colleague. I wanna give a shout out to Dr. Jason Kennedy, who I know has a podcast on ar- more focusing on, ar- on archeology, span which yep. is one of the subfields of anthropology, and myself. 
So Dr. Kennedy offers a lot of courses um, in archaeology and in biological anthropology. I offer the courses in cultural and linguistic anthropology. So some of the electives that, that I've offered in the past and will continue to offer are things like Borders and Boundaries, which is kind of a geopolitical course, um, Anthropology and Social Justice, which aims to look at how anthropology can be used to do good in the world, yeah. Yeah. hopefully something that we're able to accomplish. Gender and Culture, which is essentially how the idea of gender is um, quite diverse cross-culturally. Um, and even within the United States, uh, globalization, mm -hmm. ethnographic methods, and I'll be teaching a course for the first, oh, Indigenous Knowledge in the Americas, which is something kind of closely related to my own uh, interests and expertise. And I'll be teaching a course next semester for the first time that I'm developing now on language loss and revitalization. So it's a course that I'm really excited to teach, but it'll basically be looking at these questions of language, how languages shift over time, and efforts to revitalize them or sort of gain new institutional ground for them to be well, taught there, and learned. Is there a language that that kind of was was is kind of been got a rebirth or a revitalization that kind Egyptian. of Egyptian? Egyptian's one of them, isn't it? <clears throat> um. I mean, At least like hieroglyphics themselves, because I couldn't like essentially. Um, here, I'll turn my mic back on. Essentially, what, what happened, happened was, was they, they like, like couldn't read it. Like they just thought it was scribbles until they actually found the what yeah. is it Rosetta Stone, right? Mm -hmm. And then they were like, "Oh, that's actually a language. It's pretty mm -hmm. cool." Okay. That was that was a little bit ago. That was like two hundred years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, late nineteenth century, I believe. Yeah. So yeah, the sort of being able to understand languages and. Uh, decipher what were by at some point dead languages has certainly happened in a number of cases. The sort of stuff that I work on sort of more prominently is how minority languages may have been lost or sort of driven near the point of extinction mm -hmm. and what people have done to try and bring those back. Right. So there's a lot of indigenous languages all across the United States and Mexico that essentially through 500 years of conquest have been reduced some have been eradicated right and had no longer have contemporary speakers but people aren't just sitting back and kind of watching that happen there's right. been all sorts of efforts both formal and informal to um, essentially strengthen and revitalize those one of the more interesting things to me um, and a language that I've worked on a little bit is the Ayuk or Mihe language which is spoken in in Oaxaca Mexico currently has probably 120,000 speakers, so not a huge number, but also not a tiny, tiny number. Um, but speakers of, the, of that language have been sort of really adept at different ways of kind of bringing the language to new audiences, new forums. They actually, uh, Ayuk, uh, in a couple of Ayuk communities, they've had these community radio stations for several decades which has been a really amazing format in which they can broadcast indigenous language across the region, right? So people, and what, you know, you think of sort of areas where technology and internet access and these things might not be that great. You essentially have a really cheap form of communication that almost everyone can access. And it's also oral, right? So a lot of this language revitalization stuff 
attempts to take what have historically been oral, orally transmitted yeah, languages and figure out how we're going to now write them and how we might teach them in school. Those are great projects, but it's also incredibly difficult, right? Because think of, essentially think of how you're going to start a written language when there's, when you're building from nothing, nothing yeah. right? So these, like the radio projects and different types of oral transmission projects essentially avoid that question altogether and keep the language largely in this format that it's been spoken throughout its history. Now, is that the community that you did your your work with? And I remember you, um, your so, presentation that I, and you were talking about, okay, that you, you know, because you're an anthropologist, so you lived, you know, you know, in the community for three months, six, I forget how long, and, mm -hmm. and, got, and got to learn and observe. So that was a different community in okay. the same region. Okay. Um, there, basically, there's a region in northeast Oaxaca, the state of Oaxaca, that's called the Ayuk or Mije region. Um, a bunch of different towns across the, the region, and some of them have, well, there's a couple in particular that have a good radio presence. The place that I did my work was in a town called Haltepec. Um, I chose to do my dissertation research there because they have an intercultural university and they have a really innovative educational model at this university. So I was able to spend um, altogether probably about 16 months there, about four months doing preliminary research and then about a year um, doing more intensive sort of full-time research collaboration teaching at, at this university. You know, one thing with Aunt in listening to kind of what you know how you're talking about anthropology and it's you know for somebody who's interested in it I think it's one of the biggest things that you anthropology is about doing you know classroom is great but it seems that where it really comes to life is 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 getting out in the field out you know you know find you know finding people that you you can learn from finding you know, if it's a lost language, being being there and seeing how it's at radios uh, practicing, or you know how a village, you know, will you know uh, comes together as a as a people and what we can learn is that uh, kind of the the way like the direction most people interested in anthropology take. I mean, I I th getting out there and doing it, I think, is uh, invaluable. It's yeah. really really important. But we can certainly, again, kind of going back to the technology point, there's so much that we can learn through different media that are available. Yeah. Whether we're talking about the kind of more formal stuff, academic journal articles and books, as well as, I mean, there's all sorts of YouTube videos and blog posts and different stuff where people are, are, are trying to do a much better job of presenting anthropological ideas yeah. to people who aren't in anthropology classes, to sort of a broader public. And to me, one of the one of the strengths of the discipline is that you get to learn about people around the world, and you get to learn about the sort of issues that people face, and you get to learn about inequality, um, and that always helps kind of put ourselves in check, right? Because humans are naturally ethnocentric, right? We sort of assume that our way of doing things our beliefs about the world, our norms, our ideas are just that. We assume that they're normal. We assume that probably everybody thinks in ways that are similar to me. 
values the things that I value. It's only when we start to see, oh, actually, this group of people thinks about this in a very different way than I do. They think about food and how we relate to food and who we eat with and how we eat and at what times a day in very different ways. You know, even taking something really kind of basic and a sure. biological yeah. necessity like that. And I think that's a, that's a strength that it's excellent when we can get out there and sort of be a part of kind of either uh, research or more applied projects and be seeing that for ourselves. But the work that others have done is also incredibly valuable and just being able to see how other people have described the world that they live in or their cultures, etc. Because when I, I, I think of the old way of, you know, like anthropologist, and so here's like the, not to throw shade on the British, but that of course means I'm going to, but, uh, you know, they would go and study these cultures, but it was almost a colonial way of looking down at the, the primitives, the savages, and, and always, aren't they quaint? Oh, isn't this kind of amusing? Well, let's steal a bunch of their artifacts and put them in our museum. And, and I, I mean, it's not, I, I'm, tell me if I'm like off base, but it seems now that a modern way is to, is really that, that you know, in, embrace, understand, respect the cult, you know, the cultures and, and, and learn, learn from them, not, not change them, you know, not, you know, send in the missionaries and, you know, and, you know, kind of civilize these, these uh, people. I mean, it just seems that things have changed dramatically. I, th I think by and large they have. Yeah. Anthropology has a very complex relationship with colonialism and imperialism. Um, I mean, the example of the British is, is probably the most the most pointed because many anthropologists, many British anthropologists were literally doing anthropological research in colonial possessions of Britain at the time, right? So there's kind of the obvious question, how can you go there and sort of attempt to learn about these people when there's this just vast power dynamic between you as a educated person, representative of the metropole going out and studying, mm -hmm. like you said, these supposedly primitive or remote people. Um, that said, anthropology hasn't been able to kind of fully shake that. There's, it's, you sort of have to go at it both ways, right? Some of that still continues to exist. There's important power dynamics in a lot of anthropological research. Mm -hmm. There are still a lot, in a lot of ways, it tends to be educated individuals from quote unquote first world nations studying people in third world or less developed areas. That's not always the case, it's definitely changed a significant amount but those dynamics do continue to exist and the other thing is that I mean I like to throw shade on the British as much as the <laughs> next guy um, but we also can't just sort of hold that hold that model of anthropology up as like a straw man to beat it up to make ourselves feel good right a lot of the anthropologists working in, in earlier generations did have a respect for human diversity, did want to learn more about different cultures around the world, partly because they thought those cultures would no longer be around in a short amount of time, right? There was this sort of acknowledgement that colonialism is changing everywhere, and if we don't document these things now, they're going to be gone, right? There certainly was a lot of kind of evolutionarily 
evolutionary thinking that, you know, these people are primitive and eventually they'll be more like us. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we can kind of either say that, you know, before it was bad and now we're good or, you know, sort of both of those, the, the good and the bad are a little bit intertwined both in yeah. in how anthropology was practiced as well as I think how it continues to be today. Uh, uh, kind of going to today, what uh, what's what are the current trends in anthropology? Kind of like where's the, uh, the profession like uh, today and where's it headed tomorrow? So I think one of the big things is that anthropology has to be increasingly interdisciplinary mm-hmm. and it also has to be increasingly public facing right so the days in which most anthropologists or a large number of anthropologists can go study these small or remote things and go to a conference and talk to the other 10 people who know about these things those are mostly gone most anthropologists and not just at the undergraduate level but most anthropologists, even who get uh, PhDs, don't work in academia. So we need to figure out better ways of communicating across different audiences um, and communicating and working with other fields. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the direction needs to focus on those, and it needs to focus on how anthropology is actually applying uh, kind of the tools that we have or the insights that we have to these real-world problems. Yeah. And you see anthropologists working on these type of kind of big-scale problems, whether it's climate and environmental change, yeah. whether it's, like I already mentioned, sort of medical and, and health inequalities, whether it's uh, kind of culture and political fr- landscapes mm-hmm. and how uh, problems and ideologies are framed in particular ways. Anthropologists have a lot to contribute to those discussions. Our big challenge is, I think, making sure that that we can communicate our findings in ways that are intelligible to others, right? Sort of get away from a lot of the jargon, get away from kind of putting ourselves in our own, you know, esoteric world and communicate with people about these bigger issues. Well, I, I know, like, at, you know, being in, uh, in marketing, you know, my career that anthropology had a place in, in marketing and mainly in that you would send an anthropologist to like a home mm-hmm. and and just if, you know, if it's your, uh, it's a laptop or a desktop computer, how do they use, how do they use that? How do they, you, you know, how is your product used every day? And, and so they're, they're there to study and, and then gain insights from, mm-hmm. uh, from that. And I, I could see probably that you could see that pretty widespread as far as a and that would be cultural anthropology primarily yes. yeah so yeah. anthropologists definitely have and continue to have um, a good relationship or a sort of a good field to work in within marketing and especially like you're saying this UX or user experience research right. right? Because somebody can think up an idea in a boardroom about how this product's going to be amazing and people are going to love it. But if people don't actually use it in the way that you think or people have kind of preconceived notions about what the item is or how it looks or whether it's masculine or feminine to use it or all these sorts of things, the only way to get at those is by either doing interviews or focus groups or ideally doing those in conjunction with sort of spending more time with with people talking about how they use the product or seeing them. Yeah, because I, I remember like classic stories like 
years and years ago, Mattel, when they introduced GI Joe, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they, you know, and you think that okay, well, boys play with a doll, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and of course they will if it, the doll will kill people, you know, because mm-hmm. that's a, that was. But then, will parents feel comfortable with their boy? And so you, mm-hmm. they needed to really have that that anthropological look and to. And you just couldn't get that just through focus groups or surveys, you know, just, uh, you know, they really had to just see how, pe- you know, people will embrace it in the home and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and just, and now grandparents come over and then, mm-hmm. you know, you got the neighborhood kids and it was, it was really interesting how involved it was before they really went around out and, and launched it in the world. And of course it ended up being successful and mm-hmm. they did their homework. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah the, um, you know, kind of, you know, this is the Career Pathways podcast, so yes. let's talk anthropology careers. So here, here I am, you know, you know, I, you know, Dr. Labrado, you know, Dr. Kennedy, they've, they've filled my noggin full of all kinds of anthropology knowledge, and I'm ready to go out in the world. What what kind of career, you know, paths, what kind of career opportunities are out there for an anthropology major? Great question. So I know my colleague, Dr. Kennedy, has talked about a lot of the ones that are more specific to archaeology, so mm-hmm. I won't touch too much on those. But I think the important things about what you're gaining with an anthropology degree is you're learning to critically analyze information, mm-hmm. you're learning social communication skills, And you're also learning how to present findings to non-specialists and different types of audiences. So those types of skills are really, really broadly applicable. I mean, you and I have talked about this a little bit, Pat, but kind of one of the biggest things for a field like anthropology is we need to be able to show students and parents that this isn't a one-to-one thing, right? I studied anthropology and now I will be an anthropologist. It doesn't work in that way like some majors like engineering or other things might. So if you study anthropology, really there's kind of a host of broad fields. Nonprofit work, so people who are working in medical fields, people are working in about about social inequality, community services, poverty reduction, um, language and education, all of those are well-tailored careers for someone with a degree in anthropology. Business, like you already mentioned, so um, actually, I have a student who essentially, her mom didn't study anthropology, but she said she's essentially an anthropologist because she's kind of the go-between between, between these different kind of specialists right. and techie people. She's the project manager and yeah, sort yeah. of makes sure that everybody can communicate to the yeah. others. Yeah. Um, uh, so those types of things, in addition to market research and kind of the other uh, user experience research that we've mm-hmm. talked about. Um, Lots of anthropologists are employed in government work, so both working for different types of government agencies, especially related to interpretation, so thinking of national and state parks, thinking of museums and other types of collections like that, as well as in law enforcement and um, sort of other types of intelligence agencies. And probably the kind of last bucket of things that I would also mention are in addition to education, which I already sort of touched on, um, but things like uh, library work, museum work, um, 
these types of things, again, where you have a lot of knowledge about kind of a host of things, but you're being able to present that to a more uh, general public. Right. right. And a lot of anthropologists do sort of their own consulting, whether it's with different types of consulting firms or kind of uh, more freelance or on their own. And you can think of anything from, again, kind of the marketing through diversity training, mm-hmm. through a sort of intercultural communication type thing. I mean, I've been contacted by people before, like asking if I wanted to sort of help do cultural competency stuff for people who are going to do business in Latin America and other areas. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that that's really important in my uh, business career before coming to Lyon. I used a, uh, it was a product called Cultural Detective, and this was anthropologists that uh, would say, okay, here, two cultures, just, you know, what are going to be the commonalities, what are going to be the, the points of misunderstanding, and, and I was brought in, it was a, a German company that had uh, a, their major U.S. subsidiary in Atlanta, and mm-hmm. and the Germans and the Americans just, you know, it just was one that they, you know, couldn't uh, quite, you know, mesh in there, and the, you know, senior leadership just, you know, was looking for a solution, and so that that it was one where we, you know, we had people like local expertise in the area. You know, I had a German uh, national that could you know, be able to be that bridge, you know, because we haven't even talked, you know, as far as like being multilingual and how that helps. So he he could, you know, he could speak, you know, as far as German, make the Germans comfortable, but he also mm-hmm. had English competency. And it, it was amazing just how, you know, that, you know, just to, you know, kind of open everybody up. And, and so you understand like the, you know, like when you give a deadline, they take it as a commitment where uh-huh. you're just kind of given like a range and uh-huh. it might be this, it might be that. No, I, I'd be very cautious in the future because uh-huh. they, through a cultural lens, this is how they interpret it. And so it's, uh, you know, that's, that, no, that's fascinating. Well, you know, kind of one thing that it's taken off on uh, your academic career, if you are a, a student that, that gra- like say graduates from Lion, uh, you could be pretty much in like like any major, and then you could and go and grad school doctorate in anthropology. It's not like you have to be anthropology all the way through your academic career. That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, just anecdotally, a lot of the people that I did uh, did my PhD with came from all sorts of different disciplines. I think there's sort of a joke that anthropology is kind of a discipline for misfits. People who like, don't feel that we really, really fit somewhere else. We're like, I don't like this about this major or this about this major. We sort of end up in anthropology because, um, it kind of lets you do whatever you want, right? We certainly have our ways and our methods, um, and the types of stuff we want to investigate, but, it's a very capacious discipline as far as what you can do and what types of research questions and methodologies could be uh, could be useful. Or... What uh, what's your next research uh, going to be on? In... So I'm continuing the the project that I started in in Oaxaca. Really, I mean, I, just a little bit more background on this. I don't want to kind of go too deep, but. 
so the project that I did for my dissertation was all about uh, this kind of intercultural education and indigenous revitalization in, in Oaxaca. And I came to that project, like a lot of anthropologists, through essentially kind of personal lived experience. I, had, I moved to Mexico um, to teach English at a conventional university uh, in 2008. I had worked for a few years in the U.S., worked with a lot of Latinos, um, taught ESL, and essentially wanted to know more about why people were coming to the U.S. and in a lot of cases working and living in really difficult conditions. So I worked at Churchill Downs Racetrack in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and a lot of the individuals who were employed there um, were from Latin America. And a lot of people lived in the barn, like the physical barns and stables. People lived in pretty rough conditions. They worked seven days a week. They had to get up at 4 a.m. to work. Right, so it was sort of like, man, why are people doing this? And you know, I wanted to know a little bit more about why and kind of what the conditions were. So I was able to get a job teaching English at a university in a different part of rural Oaxaca. And through being there, it kind of fostered this, this question of what's going on? Why are they having, why would they employ a, me, a gringo, to come here and teach English, but they're not offering classes in indigenous languages in the region. So how do we get to this point where some languages are so prestigious on a global scale that literally everyone wants to learn them, right? You can go to a village in Bangladesh or Mexico or Cambodia or Siberia, and you're going to find kids who want to learn English. And you're going to find the flip side where many times those languages don't have much institutional support. So they're not being taught at the university level. So for me, that was all about wanting to figure out how that came about historically and what's going on now. So like, why are, how are people not just accepting it? How are they challenging and trying to revitalize this? That's ongoing. Um, <laughs> and I'll sort of turn it over. So uh, you, you're planning to go back and, and, uh, and stay? Yeah, I've remained, I mean, I'm still in contact with a lot of the people yeah, at the university. Yeah. Um, I wasn't able to go this summer. I went the previous summer, but I'm hoping to get back, if not in the winter, then the following a year from now. Mm-hmm. So uh, essentially, like, let's say, hypothetically, we wanted to start revitalizing these languages and bring them back. Like, let's say Lakota, like a, like the northern uh, like lakes people, like the indigenous people out there, because I know a lot of people don't speak that anymore, even of Native American heritage. How do we go about actually getting that those languages back? Like, how is there a way that we could actually, like, have institutional support to bring these languages back and have people get interest into them? Yeah, that's a great question. So different strategies around language, sort of language revitalization more specifically, but we can also think kind of more broadly about culture. One, like you mentioned, is the institutional support, right? So if a language is taught in school, that gives it, gives it this really important, not only like time and space that it's being learned, but it also has a kind of symbolic prestige that attaches to the language, which again, if we think back, these languages were not even viewed as languages for a long time. They were viewed as dialects. They were marginalized. They were attempted to be eradicated, right? So getting them in a kind of more formal space is really important, both for the learning of the language, but also for this more symbolic aspect. Um, Because the other big thing that needs to happen is that parents need to continue teaching their children the language. Um, 
I mean, there's a kind of four-level classification of linguistic vitality in which a language is um, safe, endangered, moribund, or dead. And like if, animals, in a sense, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like endangered species, endangered languages. Uh-huh. Yeah. So once you get to the point where parents, parents aren't teaching their, their kids the language, then it's only a matter of time. So you have to figure out what are the popular or what's going to resonate with parents so that they want to teach their kids language. And again, if we're thinking of parents' generation, this is probably a lot of people who you know, may have been physically beaten for speaking their language right, in educational institutions. So figuring out what's going to resonate with them so that they can help. Another strategy that's really interesting that's been employed in a lot of places actually jumps parents generation goes to grandparents so what began in Australia with this practice called language nests essentially aims to pair usually grandparents or sort of elders in the community with children and especially because in a lot of cultures around the world grandparents and elders sort of play a, a very important role so there's also been this move to kind of bring them directly into the language teaching um, especially in cases when Either parents aren't interested or parents have been deracinated from the language themselves. So those are a couple. Other ones, I mean, are just sort of thinking broadly. How do we communicate? We communicate now through text and through cell phone and through sort of all these other types of media. Well, a lot of people speaking that speak indigenous languages have developed apps for learning those languages. They've developed apps or sort of tried to make it more common to use that language on Facebook is the sort of old school one, but thinking about Snapchat and Instagram, kind of all these other um, avenues in which to speak. So I think those are kind of the the kind of big ways to think about it. What are the like institutional spaces or the avenues in which the language can be spoken? How can we open those up? And on the sort of symbolic level, what can we do to, to motivate people or to have them think that it's important to continue speaking this language. Because ultimately, I mean, the question is, it, doesn't, it ultimately doesn't matter what I think. It matters what speakers of the language think. Um, yeah, and I, I remember uh, in, coming from Atlanta, uh, we uh, had a very big uh, Korean population. And my daughter, many of her friends were Korean. And Saturdays, they were at school learning Korean, learning culture, because the parents, grandparents, were concerned that, you know, they become, they become naturalized and, and, you know, English, you know, they've been speaking since birth, that they'll lose mm -hmm. something if they don't try to, you know, pay, you know just pass it, pass it along. And uh, it was very, you know, it was real important mm -hmm. to them. And, you know, because you, you know, I think back like, you know, that it wasn't a language thing, but when I think of my grandfather coming from Ireland, he basically ran away from home, but he was your classic naturalized immigrant of the 1900s where he didn't ever want to talk about, you know, Ireland, period. That, that, that was, that's over. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm here, I'm in America, let's talk, talk that. And, mm -hmm. and uh, that was a real common uh, practice and then what you lose is you know in, by generations is the culture yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah and I think the this especially that example of Korea is is a great one in which kind of the community itself is thinking about 
what are the spaces and how can we promote yeah. this? So yeah. it's great when, when you can actually get the backing of formal education, but lots of times you don't have it. So thinking about community centers, oftentimes churches or worship spaces, yeah. you know, these other things that exist and are sort of important cultural touch points already for the community, thinking about how to use them more broadly um, to kind of teach languages, culture, values that are important to you know, one, one thing that, that this has been awesome conversation, uh, and we had all these questions, and now we, of <laughs> course, go off script, but, uh, you know, just uh, uh, kind of a uh, off the, kind of out of the blue question, the world's so flat, and, you know, it seems like there's nothing undiscovered. Are, are there still cultures, places... That no, that you know, that like call it the civilized world has yet to find. <sighs> Pat, we should have started with this one. Uh, <laughs> no, okay. I mean the short answer to that to that is no. All right. There's, it's I mean stories circulate in popular culture every now and again about the discovery of a lost, untouched tribe. Right. Um, those stories are largely fantasy, right? Those are stories, kind of, I think, what you were getting at, that we sometimes we want to think that there's someone outside of our world, someone who is... In the Amazon. Yeah. Somewhere that, that you know, not the, not the online retailer, of course, that could happen. But yeah, they, they're, they're discovering <laughs> all sorts of things all the time. Right. No, but, I mean, the reality uh, is that we all live in an integrated world at at, at, in today's in today's world, the thing is that some people are integrated in just direly unequal circumstances, right? So if a if a quote unquote tribe is found in the middle of the Amazon or discovered, it's not that they sort of haven't been living in the modern world. They have. They might have been assiduously trying to avoid it for several generations. There's a really amazing book by an anthropologist named Lucas Bessier in which he talks basically about this sort of thing. He worked with the Ioreo people who were sort of viewed as one of the last untouched kind of people. And it's in the Gran Chaco area of Paraguay, so it's not the Amazon. It's a little further south. But it's the, the same sort of story had circulated over and over about this group of people who lived in the forest. Mm-hmm. Well, these people had essentially been fleeing bulldozers and land encroachment for for years and years and years. So you can't say, like, they're not touched by, by the modern world. They were. that They were just literally trying to flee because their lives were being destroyed. People were kind of literally capturing them and bringing them into the modern world the modern society right and that's the thing too if you look at a map today all the land on the map is states right there are no areas of the world that are sort of uncharted territory those things don't exist and governments country national level governments are very interested in knowing who lives in their territory right and hopefully having those people pay taxes and sort of abide by the things that citizens have to do so whether you're in the middle of the Amazon or whether you're in the middle of Democratic Republic of Congo or whether you're in the middle of of Java and in Indonesia, you're still a part of a state, right? You still belong to this political entity that has some hierarchical government over you, right? 
And can receive an Amazon shipment from and Amazon. And can receive yeah. an a shipment, right. shipment from Amazon, probably get cell phone reception <laughs> and drink a Coca-Cola. There you around. go. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Matt. This has been awesome. Man. Thank you all. It's been a pleasure. All right. Real good. Interesting to me is like actually learning about history and stuff of itself because I, even though I'm technically an English major, I'm a really big history buff. I love like World War II, World War One, and while that's not technically what an anthropologist does, I mean, sort of, you know, you're uncovering past, but like I just think that like knowing where we came from and like how we got to there, like that's like the Rosetta Stone thing, like that. That just is so intriguing to me how like just some farmer in Egypt, you know, just plowing his field and then all of a sudden, oh, there's a stone here. Hey, I'm going to give it to the, some people like, wait a minute, we know how to translate an entire language now. It's like, how, how does, how do you get from there until now we know everything about Egyptians because of it? I just think like that is just fascinating to me. That's why like, I, I just like in my free time, I'll just I'll be on YouTube and I'll just be all of a sudden I'll look and I'm like two hours into like a video on like the history of like uh, uh, how languages evolved from like uh, just a, some random language like Korean or something like that. And it'd just be like how it evolved from this to this and this. I, it, that's just like my thing. I don't know. So this was like a really fun episode. I was like engaged the whole time. I was like. Everything he said, I was just, like, amazed by. Like, I yeah, almost yeah. jaw-dropping. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Gavin? Uh, yeah, same. Honestly, I really enjoyed the whole thing. Uh, I'm not really much of a history buff, uh, as Jason might be, but he really, like, lured me in and kept me into the conversation, and he always was able to link it back to something I did know, more of a technology on how like it's evolving and with some of the questions that we asked, how would it be so and so years from now? Although he might have not known the exact answer, he was still able to give me somewhat of an idea of what he thought would happen and so on. Yeah, and, and the thing with, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, and I've gotten uh, to know Matt, uh, you, know, you know, in my time here at Lyon and, uh, and the things that uh, I would, uh, say about him is that you have somebody that is incredibly curious you know he's really culturally sensitive you know he's respectful uh, no surprise that you know as far as how interesting this class was it's no surprise how many students just love his intro to anthropology course and then all, wouldn't you know it they start taking one two three more and I know from, as a head of career services, I see, gosh, I see all these anthropology minors. Where'd that come from? Well, it comes from uh, a conversation like we just had with, uh, with Matt, where you just find out how interesting it is and how, you know, anthropology has four different as, you know, parts to it. And so each of those has its own fascinating areas. We talked with Jason Kennedy about one area, you know, Matt's you know, his expertise around cultural anthropology just, you know, just opened up this whole doorway of all the, you know, all the things that you could possibly learn in the world. I mean, it's, uh, it really is uh, uh, something that I just, I love, and everybody who thinks, oh, you know, anthropology, I, I, I don't get it, it's not for me, I encourage, I encourage everyone to listen to this uh, podcast, because uh, I think it'll really fascinate you. And so, anything else to wrap up, guys? No, I think, I mean, the only thing I would say, too, is one thing I did learn today yeah. from him is that I absolutely want to take a class with him now. There you <laughs> like, go. Absolutely. I yeah. need to take a class with him. Absolutely. Okay, and with that, 
we are going to wrap up uh, the Career Pathways podcast. Thank you again for listening uh, to this show. As always, uh, you know, if you like the show, you know, kind of uh, like us on your, wherever it is that you listen to your podcast, leave a review. We love to hear that. We're going five to stars. Five stars? Five stars. We need a five star review. No, okay, nothing you, less. Nothing, nothing less. less. All right. Or and so that and we know you will. And uh, just you know, keep on listening. And if you want to share uh, share this with others, let them uh, know and you know and uh, pass on the word. We appreciate it as always, and we look forward to another great episode connecting with you in the future. Uh, this is a farewell from Pat Lynch, Gavin Brunson, and Jason Nichols. All right, see ya. This broadcast is sponsored in part by Lion College and also sponsored in part by Kilt Radio.